Hello and welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Mahesh. And I'm Alex. Today we're going to be joined in the studio by one of my favorite professors, Anat Lechner, who teaches Managing Change, among other courses here. And outside of Stern, she helps major companies deal with innovation and disruption in the face of change. So she's extremely philosophical and thoughtful in the way she teaches and talks. So I'm really looking forward to diving into her thoughts on the future of business and the future of our world. Her approach is really refreshing, and I think you'll be really excited to hear how she approaches change and both personal and business lives. So let's dive in. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello, and welcome to the Stern Chat studio, Professor Lechner. Hello, thank you. Hi, we're so happy to have you here. Um, Alex and I are excited to get to know you a little bit more and share your story with the Stern community. Yeah, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Uh, sort of 30-second pitch for yep. the Stern folks who don't know you already. Yeah, and I'm very happy to be here. Actually grateful for the opportunity because it's, uh, you know, it's special. Um, my name is Anat. I've been at Stern ever since 1999. I came in as, a, as an adjunct, then as a, I don't know, temporary something and then as a more permanent uh, professor. And I specialize in uh, change management, try and take a strategic approach to change management, and we can explain it later. In terms of background, I started my uh, life as a therapist, um, moved on to get an MBA, get a PhD in organization management. And throughout my years, I worked as a uh, consultant and uh, worked at Stern and other teaching uh, positions. Yeah, you've done a lot of things uh, throughout. So, you know, working as a therapist, um, you served in the Israeli military, Correct. I believe. I'm a lieutenant. Yeah, a lieutenant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair> enough. Um, <clears throat> and you were a McKinsey consultant Correct. and um, a, a lot of things going on. So um, I guess before all that, I, are there any sort of formative moments from from your childhood, from before all this started that sort of led you to to follow this, yeah, this path. Yeah, well, it's um, th- there's something quite interesting and quite foolish about it, but it's worth telling that story, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know how they do um, school year books or whatever they're called, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, I think, middle school, they asked everybody to say what they want to be when they grow up. I said, I want to be a psychologist. So anyways... Um, Prescient. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, I, and it, it's very weird. You're, you're like 13. So it's not like I've been through a lot of therapy. I actually haven't been to therapy at all. So it was like a really weird thing. How does that fly out of your mouth? And you really are connected with this. It's really, really strange. Mm. Anyways, um, so I've lived in, a, in an apartment building and I've lived on the ninth floor. On the 10th floor, there lived a psychiatrist, one of the... I think most prominent psychiatrist in Israel, actually. So one day we're taking the elevator together. I'm 14. And uh, uh, I'm supposed to get off on the, t- on the ninth floor. He's on the 10th floor. He just came from someplace because he's carrying a suitcase with him, right? 
So I asked him, where are you coming from? He says, I, I just came from Brazil. I said, oh, interesting. We went to Brazil just half a year ago. I was in Rio. It was amazing. How did you, how did you end up going there? He said, well, I went to a conference. I said, what's that? He said, well, uh, you know, people invite you to um, come in and talk, and they kind of take care of you A to Z, door to door. <laughs> and I just came back. I said, oh, that, that's a life. What, what, do you need, what do you need for that? He said, uh, well, at least a PhD. I said, okay. Uh, the, the elevator stopped at the ninth floor and it was pretty clear to me what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was it. So talking about it's a weird formative moment, right? That's not the only one that's obviously, obviously shaped me, but uh, that was um, such a kind of strange thing. that The strange things that impact you uh, are really unexpected. Mm. Um, anyways, of course, I came from a family that uh, education was very important. My grandmother was the first woman physician in the entirety of Europe, and things like that, right? Wow. So there are some, I think, legacy ideas that kind of fall in the back of the mind through family stories and things like that that kind of stay with you. Mm -hmm. But uh, not everybody in the family listened, but I guess I did. So, <laughs> yeah, that's phenomenal. So when you went to college then, and you're you know studying psychology there, uh, and kept that sort of focus uh, yeah. even in, in Tel Aviv as well. No, so here is what's happening, right? So I wasn't a really great uh, student in school. That wasn't my thing at all. And there is a, there is a reason for that. I mean, grow up, you grow up in Tel Aviv, especially in the times when I did. But also today, I think, um, you have other priorities. So, for instance, going to the beach is really important. And it's a really great weather, you know, throughout the year. So you can't really miss on that opportunity. Um, Rocky Horror Show is a really good movie back in there. And then. You, you, I mean, there, there are, <laughs> there are things. Still has a cult following. <laughs> exactly. And so there are things that really compete on your time. Yeah. And so you have to, nav you have to learn to navigate school requirements with life. It's quite complicated when you're young, right? So, um, so consequent to that, I think I was uh, I was a good student, but I wasn't an excellent student, and I also don't do well on uh, GMAT, Met, GRE, Met. I, I don't have patience for for any of this, <laughs> frankly. I don't know if this is. I mean, you can edit all this out if you like, right? <laughs> no, I promise we won't. Most but of your uh, listeners have already taken those tests. Yeah, so. Exactly. I know. It's it's sad, but it's the sad truth, right? So, anyways. Um, I, I then after when I was discharged from the army, I did what uh, all good Israelis are doing. And this is you, you backpack for as, lo as long as you possibly can. Right. So I'm with my little backpack traveling through. I, I went to Europe, traveling throughout Europe. And it's half a year into this. My mother getting really antsy because I'm saying, you know, maybe I'll stay in London. Maybe I'll stay in Paris. Everywhere I go, I'm thinking maybe I'll stay there for a while. Right. So she gets really upset. So she calls me one day and she says, Maybe I'll enroll you in uh, first year Tel Aviv University or something, and I submit an application for you. I say, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what shall I apply for you for, she says. And I'm thinking, ah, I'd like philosophy. I, like, I was studying philosophy in Tel Aviv University while, while I was an, a high school student. So, But uh, um, hopefully you noted the contrast between going to the Rocky Horror Show <laughs> and then also taking philosophy classes in university level, right? <laughs> Anyways, um, I say, yeah, I think I'd like to try the psychology department. So she does that. She applies for psychology. And uh, I think three or four months later, the letter comes back. And uh, she says, can I read it for you? Because, you know, it's, my, it's under my name. I say, yeah, open and read because I'm calling from, I think, Spain someplace. She says, um, well, unfortunately, 
This is how the letter starts, right? Unfortunately, uh, we do not have a place for you in the psychology department. I'm like, what? You don't, you don't have a place for me in the psychology department? Like, who will you have a place for? Like, seriously, I wanted to be a psychologist from day one. <laughs> not like people that score high on, on the GMAT, right? Or the GRE. <laughs> I actually really wanted it. So I ended up going uh, to a social work program and then loaded on the psychology program uh, courses and eventually got uh, certified. But it was, a, it was a big struggle. So somehow you end up, uh, you have to really stay close to your dreams mm-hmm. or there'll be a lot of derailment. And it comes from, you know, bureaucracy, procedures. You didn't get the right grade point and da 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 And meanwhile, you might actually be highly qualified and really intentional and purposeful and passionate about something. And, uh, whether or not the world will accept that, uh, you'll have to struggle sometime. And I did. Yeah, and you continued yeah. through to a PhD. Yeah. But you were probably an anomaly in your program having already done an MBA before your PhD. Yeah, so what, what led you to, to So that was an interesting thing. In? So, yeah, that was actually quite interesting. For one, you're right. Um, we had a high school reunion uh, not too long ago, right? So I show up, and I and another person are the only professors, right? <laughs> so that's like a little, you know, I don't know who the joke is on, but uh, surely <laughs> all the people that were really great students in high school, not many of them mounted to something. It's actually quite interesting to see. And those who were a little off, it's unbelievable what got out of them. Hmm. That, uh, it's a very important point to, if you ever want to talk about this, it's actually very important to to understand what's actually the mechanism that leads for that. Mm. Uh, but it's uh, uh, more often than not, that's exactly the case. Anyways, I graduate in uh, first degree, right? And, um, and what I discovered, which was also for me quite, quite formative and quite interesting is, um, you know, when, you're a, when you think that you want to be a psychologist, there is something about you that believes that you would want to be in a one-on-one relationships kind of thing, right? You would want to spend your time day after day after day sitting with people, talking with them about their issues, and it's a one-on-one context. And then while studying, I discovered that I'm not interested in that at all. I can do it quite well, but I am not interested in that. Mm. I much prefer uh, to solve problems on a macro level opposed to a micro level. And that is something that is, uh, we don't necessarily think of ourselves this way until something tests you, comes to test you, right? So you get an assignment. In my case, it was an assignment. Mm-hmm. And instead of, des- instead of developing a solution for a single person at a time, I found myself developing a solution for tens of thousands of people. And I presented in school and they did not like it. And it was very funny that 20 years later, this idea was implemented throughout the entire country. So some weird moments happen to you that you discover things about yourself. And I discovered that I much prefer to think macro level, system mm-hmm. level. Um, so coming out of school, I decided that I'll, I'll apply for uh, a PhD in um, policy. Mm-hmm. And and I got accepted <laughs> right out of college. It was quite quite unbelievable, actually, because it's really rarely happening, surely not in Israel. You usually have to go from a BA to a ma- an MA yes, or yeah. write a master degree to mm-hmm. a PhD. And I got accepted immediately. Mm. Um, and public policy interested me. 
about the same time I got married and uh, we're sitting in Paris enjoying, you know, the fact that we're married. Uh, we went for a honeymoon, right? I'm looking at my husband and I'm looking at Paris and I'm thinking if I ever want to see Paris again, I should switch to a profession that will make me um, able to afford this. And public policy will not be one. <laughs> so I'm thinking through that, um, I want to say very narrow perspective, very specific. And right there and then I'm deciding to switch to uh, do an MBA and proceed with a PhD in business. Mm. And it's actually quite interesting because it served me very well, surely financially, but I don't know that it served me very well from uh, the perspective of what I'm cut to do. What do you mean by that? I think that the, the I, I was just talking with someone about this, in fact, just a couple of days ago, and I was saying to them that uh, my future is about public policy, actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, there has been, I want to say, about 50 years delay <laughs> 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 between recognizing that I'm going to be very, um, that it's going to be important for me and I'm going to be very successful doing that. Hmm. There's you a need the time to gain all that wisdom. So. Yeah, there's a <laughs> perhaps, right, if, yeah. if I gain any. But That's let's just say um, it's, it's, it's going to be not 50, but most likely 30 to 40 years delay. Because my, my future plans is to go and get involved in exactly that. So, you know, so, so deep in my future, which uh, my future has, you know, naturally become, I'm not going to say shorter than my past, but at least of equal length. Um, but my future involves a lot of public policy, that's for sure. Interesting. Wow. So when you transitioned into now sort of abruptly this business world mm -hmm. coming from your psychology or yeah. either it's like sort of side psychology yeah, background. Yeah. What were you able to draw on yeah. it from that first step into now pursuing a PhD in business, um, seeing how human behavior drives a lot of that? Yeah, so this, this really is a great question in the sense that, um, for one, nothing ever gets lost. So anything that you learn, um, it's almost like there is a cosmic reason for why it is you needed to know that kind of thing. And you might even not know it in the moment, but in the future you'll be able to make um, very good use of pretty much everything that you learned. So I'm sitting in an MBA class, and I'm so surprised to see that people don't have any sense how to think of people. And I'm thinking, seriously, organizations, uh, what are they about? So just a bunch of people trying to, to, to do something together, and sometimes not even that. <laughs> just trying to take care of themselves sometimes, <laughs> right? And yeah. it's very self-serving, right? So I'm so amazed that many of my colleagues are coming from other, they, they were trained as economists, they were trained as accountants, they were trained as, as pretty much ever. I had pilots, I had many people in my program, my MBA program, but very, very few had any insight to the psychology of human beings, right? And so that gave me a very different perspective and, and, and very needed perspective. And I think I was able to build my entire career so far on that um, hybriding of knowledge. So I became very well versed in the business, you know, um, uh, terminology, frameworks, ways of thinking. But I'm equally well versed in understanding what gets you going. And so to be then able to translate it into a career, I could come in and I could understand how teams work. I could understand why leaders make decisions the way they make them from a personal standpoint. I could understand what perspective they take on uh, taking risk and why that's their perspective and so on and so forth. And that, that was, uh, an unbe it's to this day, a very 
interesting knowledge to to bring into the business space, right? So it, it created a career for me where I could do a lot of um, organization management, organization change management, um, leadership coaching of all sorts, uh, knowing and being able to bring insights on the human spirit and human heart and the, and, and the way we are kind of, you know, operating uh, into the conversation. I'm curious, was this a big part of the MBA experience at the time, knowledge of that type, or was this sort of n- new and, and It changing? was very new. Yeah. It was very, very new. There was uh, in uh, the MBA in Tel Aviv had the track that was called Organization Behavior, mm-hmm. um, which to this day obviously is one of the layers within, within um, uh, management or leadership even, though uh, it was very, very fresh, and there were very few concepts that were taught and well-taught. And people were talking about burnout and uh, a a little, very, very little about change, almost nothing. Organizational culture was a big thing suddenly. and was a, these are concepts that started, I mean, the first concept on on human behavior within work, uh, if if to go by the way literature documented this, other than leadership itself, is uh, human motivation which is something people discovered suddenly in the 30s. There were some series of experiments. You might have studied it at one point. And, and they discovered that human motivation is actually important. We're talking the 1930s, right? Uh, but then the conversation kind of dies. In the 1960s, people begin to think that working in teams or groups, they call them, is important. Then the conversation dies. In the 80s, people say, hmm, organizational culture, there must be something into, in, uh, about that. And then the conversation dies, hmm. and so these are these are you know within uh, these are add-ons to the conversation on business management or business leadership that have evolved over the years. But to this day, if you did some sort of a um, if you try to visualize that, I think that the conversation on human beings within work is still actually a marginal conversation. Yeah. It comes after strategic decisions and. Uh, I don't know, uh, numbers of all yeah. sorts. Of well, maybe it's hard to quantify, right? So it is. It's hard to quantify. And as we know, you know, Einstein said something about, you know, quantifying the things that are not important <laughs> and have no sense of how to right. address those who are, right? right. So I'm not going to play down the importance of analytics and, and, and economics of work and so on and so forth because they are obviously uh, equally important, if not at some point more important, sure. to the viability of the business. However... Um, businesses are about people and about the way they are led and uh, about the way the business adapts, which has uh, a change nuance to it, which has a people nuance to that. So it's, it's as, as critical. And one of the courses you teach here, mm-hmm. um, cha- uh, Managing Change, yeah. uh, did you c- create that class from these, these insights? Did something like that exist at Stern before you started that? Um, that's that's actually quite interesting. I, I I'm I have no I think yeah I think that I was not the person to create the class mm-hmm. per se. I think it was taught before, um, but in a very uh, quiet way. So in other words, it was an elective offered, not too long before I started to teach it. I used to teach um, the we call it MO, which was the previous version for LIO, and um, I taught for a number of years managing high-performing teams, mm-hmm. which is a course that I built from, from, from zero, right? Um, 
and and maybe connecting it back to a question that you asked, I was able to bring group therapy knowledge into thinking how to work in cross-functional teams. Hmm. Okay, so on the point that nothing that you study ever disappears, suddenly it was actually very, very relevant. So I created that course. And then I was asked to teach change management. I don't even remember anymore how this came about. <laughs> sure. uh, somebody yeah. taught it before me or started the class before me. And, um, and then over the years, I built it to more of a uh, specialization and some sort of a major thread within what it is we teach. And uh, at this point, I think we have a very solid course with a very nice followership of, of people who, who take it because they understand the importance of it to their uh, careers and their ability to function even as people uh, without being leaders someplace just as a human being, being able to function in a society that continuously evolves and has so many dramatic changes it has to deal with. Yeah, the course is so human-focused and psychology-focused. Mm. And uh, I think for people who didn't get the chance to be in your class, I think they'd be interested to hear sort of your idea of the theory of change, frameworks of change, yeah. um, if you wanted to share yeah. a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, when you get trained as a therapist, you actually get trained to think on change, right? That's, that's the core of it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I've had many years thinking on, on the concept of change. In, in Hebrew, when you talk about change, the root of the, ro- of the word change, because the, 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 the way the language is structured is words have roots to them. And from the same root, there can be multiple words emerging and are connected right through the, the shared root. Well, the root of the word change is actually repetition. Hmm. And I remember sitting on this idea, um, I've no idea how many years actually, trying to, uh, trying to understand why change and repetition are connected. It's a pretty complicated proposition because it's an idea that, neg- that has... It's an oxymoron, has uh, two ends that negate each other, right? Um, And then, of course, uh, we have two claims on change, I think, that are philosophically very intriguing. One that's aligned with what I'm presenting, which says that there's nothing new under the sun, which naturally uh, embraces repetition. Sure. Mm -hmm. Another that says that you can't step into the same river twice, which naturally negates repetition. Mm -hmm. So perhaps uh, philosophically you can think on change as something that occurs either by embracing these two ends, which is a very difficult proposition to think about. So you kind of live with that paradox that on one end everything repeats and on the other end nothing ever repeats. And can you reconcile it somehow? Mm-hmm. Which I think we can. And or you can think of change as something that occurs between those two ends and try to figure that out, right? So I've always um, been drawn to f- into philosophy and thinking on things that way. I've always uh, liked to think on change as a uh, some, something of a relationship between the, in, in bi- biology they call it the genotype and the phenotype of an entity. Uh, genotype being the sum of all its capabilities, 
and phenotype being what it's expressing. So if you think about yourself, right, what is the sum of all your capabilities? It's actually an impossible question to right. answer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you might be able to answer a question that says, can you be what it is you're not? And so if you think, again, um, if you think about um, the natural world, you think about a tree and a, and a flower, can a flower become a tree? No. No, right? Certainly not. So maybe change is about the relationship between what something expresses mm-hmm. and what something can be. Hmm. And there is a, the totality of what you can be, which is a very far boundary where your job is, perhaps your job in life, is to find how much can you express within that sum of your capabilities. And how can you express it better and better in more and more agile and relevant way? Mm-hmm. And so when I think of change, in that sense, nothing ever changes and everything always does, always right. did, right? Yeah. Because you always express more and it appeals as if you change, but at the end, it's always you. Yeah, do you have an example of, of a time working with evolving a company into something that's more what it should be in this current day and age? Pretty much all, all, my, all my consulting um, engagements are um, driving in, in this direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, absolutely everything. I do work with, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies. I, so, you know, m- many years back, this is now uh, going to be uh, perhaps a controversial example because of what's happened with this company. Mm. But uh, the, the story is still relevant, right, especially per your question. So the company is Teva, the pharmaceutical company. And over its, over its past number of years, because of all sorts of leadership changes that have happened over these years, um, uh, its financial performance especially has been deteriorating uh, in a really sad way. However, uh, the time that I'd like to kind of reflect on is a time where I was asked to come and help um, the innovation group within Teva becoming more innovative, shall we say. And what's interesting about Teva is that it's one of the, at, at least it was the first company within the pharmaceutical space to hybrid between um, branded and generic drugs. Mm. When you have this position, um, it brings a lot of complexity to the business because the generic um, organization works off uh, efficiencies and and scale because the margins on generic drugs are just like almost non-existent, right? The innovative side of the, the branded side of an organization like this has to put a lot of money into innovation. So this duality is very, very difficult to, to manage within the same organization and the same strategy, the same leadership and the same organizational culture. One side of your business spends money like there is no tomorrow. The other side of your business saves money like there is no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine what the conversations might look like at a leadership level. Doesn't right? go well, <laughs> yes. I imagine. Yes. Yeah. So the work uh, to turn the innovative group more innovative had to um, capture the essence of the discipline that came from the generic uh, group mm-hmm. and bring that level of discipline into innovation, which is very complicated to do. But since they had it in their DNA, it wasn't as challenging, right? 
Um, and at the same time, be able to drive hardcore innovation, which naturally involves a lot of uh, failure on the way to get someplace, right? A lot of uh, great risk tolerance. Yeah. Okay, so what was the work then? What what can be done with something like mm -hmm, this, right? Right. Um, so other than the hard um, decisions which were done on uh, acquisition, strategic acquisitions and changing of, of structure to enable um, greater innovation, which was obviously uh, absolutely needed. Um, we had to bring something out of the culture to kind of um, uh, propel a different capacity. Well, what was that something? So both sides of the organization, existing over 100 years at that time, uh, or nearly 100 years, um, were about one thing especially, both sides of the business. And this was on um, some sort of Israeli, Israeli science and pride around it. And once this got unlocked, this became a, uh, this became a value that um, bridged between the two orientations because suddenly there was a higher purpose to pursue. And every, every argument that could come back to are we making this decision on behalf of Israeli science and pride around it? If the answer was yes, then more resources could go in that direction. I hope I'm saying this something that it, that begins to make sense to you. You take something that's com coming out of, or you take a value that comes out of deep assumptions within this company, and you bring it up to be a strategic consideration. Mm -hmm. And as such, it begins to um, work as a co coordinating idea across all decisions, be them uh, conflicting with one another or challenging uh, each other, or aligned. It just aligns it. But it's a guidepost at but least. It's a, and exactly. it's never been spoken exactly. about before. So you it, brought it and, from and you the, and you yeah, make it a right. similar work was done um, many years back in American Express. And they were sitting this is going back to nineteen ninety. And they are sitting looking at the split that's emerged in their business. And if you're in traveling rate services, there's one way to manage the business. If you're in financial services, there's another way to manage the business. And they're naturally very, very different. And they're asking themselves, what will be the shared, that shared value? This, I'm, I'm telling you this story because this is where I took it from. Mm. What will be that shared consideration and shared guidepost? And they come to conclude that their vision for the entirety of American Express is to be the brand... Um, most admired for its customer service. Mm. And suddenly it doesn't really matter if you're in financial services or in your traveling-related services. Everything you have to do is in light of being the brand most admired for your yeah. customer centrism. And they talk about customer centrism in 1991. I think we can all appreciate in 1991 no one spoke about customer centrism, right? right? right. So they bring it to be their thing. And to this day, they then coined uh, what they call the blue box values, right? The blue box that's on your American Express is symbolic for internally to American Express. Mm -hmm. Okay, they call them the, the blue box values. Yeah. They have five or six of them, and they're all about customer focus. They bring it actually to all of us to think that customership is so critical. That become their guiding post. And with that, they unlock something that's really theirs, 
they've done this all all over the all over their years but now they they call it out they coin it they they term it and then they make it their vision so when we talk about creating a change what is the change now it just allows in this case of American Express to align the business in the case of Teva it allows to um, enhance your innovation in a particular direction realizing particular assets but uh, it creates clarity in this and it brings something that's yours to begin with into its future mm. I like those examples a yeah. lot yeah mm. they're, they're very telling I'm curious as you look at the future now I mean right now in a rampant disruption everywhere obviously yeah. disruption is a hot word describing what's yeah. going on and how how businesses have to cope do you see these the, the your vision of how change needs to be managed being more relevant than ever or having to also be changed to yeah. to, yeah. to, mm. um, to the, think about about a modern era yeah um that's an interesting question i, I i'll say i'll say this um i think current times i mean I always wonder, wonder if you ask people in 1929 how much change is going on in their lives, would they not say that it's, it's just incredible and so disruptive? Good point. If you, if you ask them in 1939 how much change is going mm. on in your life, and actually in any time people believe that there's a lot of change going on in their lives. So right. there is difference between the subjective experience and what you might uh, reflect on as more objective uh, experience that's happening. Yeah. The um, uh, way we think on reality is one where we know that there's a lot more change that's happening and the duration of, of change, um, the shelf life of change has shortened dramatically. We see it through quite a number of um, manifestations. One is um, just the adaption rate and how long it takes for something to get adapted. We've seen all these graphs, right? How long it took for the radio to get adapted, how long it took for the internet to get adapted, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we see this through um, the number of products that come to market and cannibalize their older brothers and sisters. Right. We see this through quite a number of manifestations. The pace of change has increased dramatically along many more facets of our lives. Hence why we experience it as much greater disruption. Consequent to that, I think that your ability to live adaptively has become very, very critical just for, for survival, right? Mm -hmm. And um, if you think about human tendency, I don't think that we like risk so much. And in fact, we think that risk is risky or taking risks is risky. We have a very, we have a very, um, um, conflicted work uh, way to think about risk and very few people have come to the right conclusion in my opinion that taking risks is opposite of risky not taking risks is risky hmm. so our approach to how we run our how we manage our relationship with change that has to change and if you think on the way we're still um, educating ourselves, we like linear thinking still. We like to learn subjects in their individuality. We like to think that at the end we'll get uh, a diploma. We like to think that that diploma is really important. We still like to think that we will get a good job later. We, we like to think of... We still like to think of stability. There is some sort of a, we're longing for stability. And I don't think that stability is in the cards 
whatsoever in the next few decades. Actually, exactly the opposite. So the relationship that you have to have with change is one where you have to embrace it. Hmm. You have to love it. You have to educate yourself to think on change as an opportunity to evolve instead of fearing it, instead of continuously trying to stabilize things in your life. And I'm not suggesting that um, everything has to then be put on some sort of a change machine. Yeah. But um, the balance between the areas where you derive stability from and the areas where you allow yourself to experience change, that balance has to change. Would you say you're optimistic then about the future or more pragmatic or because I I, uh, talking about like changes in the next few decades I feel like a lot of people talk about automation as like destroying jobs increasing inequality Um, and especially when you talk about tech you have a an optimistic sort of edge to it or is it just an inevitable and we have to be prepared and move forward like how, how would you characterize your um, opinion your yeah mood? I, I I have many thoughts on this and I I have to say that I'm kind of only half decided okay um, <laughs> yeah I'll allow it yeah I, <laughs> yeah. I, I have I'll, I'll share with you some of my thoughts I sometimes think of myself I'm 56 I sometimes think of myself being 76. Walking down wherever, say, one of the avenues in New York. And it's full of automation. And I'm wondering what it is. And I, the thought that I have is I'm walking down that avenue thinking, what have we brought on ourselves? Mm-hmm. That's the thought that I have. Together with that, obviously, I'm very excited about some of the changes that are coming. I like the idea that I don't need to sit in traffic. I like the idea that if I do sit in traffic, I can watch Madam Secretary, episode 5,327, <laughs> right? I like, I like many of the health benefits. I, li- I, like, I like quite a number of the things that are coming, and I see mm-hmm. them in their embryonic self, and I understand their trajectory to a certain extent, and I appreciate it. I like the idea that we will have more opportunities to educate more people. I like the idea that we will have the ability to live longer and healthier. There's many good things that uh, the future that we're building will afford us. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and, I, and I love, I just love uh, the unlocking of the human spirit when it comes to innovation. Mm-hmm. And there's so much of it, and we will see so much more of it. I think this is incredible, and I think that because of that, we will be able to solve all the problems that we're bringing on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, on what I'm not decided yet. So net net, I'm a, I'm a, I'm just an optimistic person, and I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic on on many of the changes that we bring, and the innovation that we unlock, which will allow us to deal with other inevitable catastrophes that we bring as well. But I've always been thinking that myself, yourself as well. We are coming from generations that were born into the second part of the 20th century. And there was a nice little illusion in that uh, last 50 years of the 20th century. And the illusion said, since we heard each other so much in the first half, in this second half, we'll try to be good friends with one another, we'll hold hands, (laughs) we'll sign global agreements, we will just fall in love with uh, multiple cultures and it's all gonna be really good. 
And we've done that to a certain extent, and I think it drove uh, quite a bit of progress into our lives. And it was a calm uh, 50 years, and it's the calm. Yeah, yeah, it was the calm after the storm. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that human nature uh, is one where we preserve calm. I think that, you know, Hegel said we're much more dialectical this way, right? Mm -hmm. Or dialectic, right? We move between periods, and we only move because we move between periods. So I'm thinking that the first um, or the coming decades, uh, next decades of the 20th, the 21st century, are not going to look so pleasing to many mm. people. And does this bring you back to your original interests in public policy? Col- then? Correct. Yeah. And correct. Thinking about like the theories of change you've talked about, uh, and you know, political turmoil, political stalemate that yeah. so many countries yeah. are currently yeah. in around Correct. the world. Correct. Um, I'm curious in like the steps of change, what um, any non-status quo politician, where where do you think they're failing currently? And yeah. like you think about like the different steps of like uh, establishing urgency, like getting buy-in yeah. from people and we're just not moving. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have a diagnosis? And I actually, unfortunately, do. Oh, um, unfortunately. Look, I think that um, the, there is, if, if you look at leadership around the world, um, this is so curious. You ask yourself how intelligent people are increasingly more and more intelligent. We are in the presence of our knowledge. We're in, uh, you know, one Google, you know, command away from knowing pretty much everything we want to know. Mm-hmm. So we've never been so in touch with our knowledge and so intelligent mm-hmm. uh, as human beings as, as we are today. How do we select these people to be our leaders? It's just, un- it's unreal. It is unreal. And this is one geography after another. You can think of people... You can think of the world, or I think of the world rather, as being kidnapped now by a bunch of uh, leaders across quite a number of countries that only God knows what qualifies them for their position. And underneath them, parliaments and, and, and groups of people who are doing everything but, and this obviously is an exaggeration because there are good people everywhere, right? But collectively, I don't see intelligent leadership tackling the problems that we have to tackle. Mm. I just I just just do not see it. Now what are the problems that we have to tackle? To name a few, we know we know them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's talking about climate change. There's nothing to talk about. You just all you have to do is travel to India in summer and sit in Goa and enjoy the fifty degrees uh, centigrade and ask yourself where is this gonna go next? Uh, all you have to do is count the number of typhoons and whatever else that's have, that have happened. You don't even, to th- there is nothing to talk about, actually. There's only action that's needed. Mm-hmm. Where is the action? At this point, people are pulling out of the Paris Accord for some very good reasons, by the way. It's all very, very troubling. Uh, automation coming to our lives. We know the numbers of how many people are going to go home. Mm-hmm. What, is the, what is the program for people who are going home? Not to be upskilled not to be returned back to working. What is the program? We know the world is aging. What is the program to deal with people who are aging? We're talking about loneliness. Yes, Theresa May appointed the Minister for Loneliness. That was a good move. Um, But you didn't hear that this is happening anywhere else in the world, right? Mm -mm. But we know that very many people are lonely and they don't need to age to be lonely. But when they age, they surely are lonely. 
So what, what is the program on that one? So somehow, a lot of the politicians that I see today are managing the problems of yesterday without really managing them so well, not committing themselves to think on where things are going because that's too, too much drama and there are no solutions other than the ones that you will innovate in a brave way and try and fail with until you succeed, which politicians don't really like to do that. They're not incentivized. They're not incentivized <laughs> to do that. Our theory of politicians has to change for that matter as well. How long of time we give them to do work, that might need to change as well. Not much can get accomplished in four years. If you go to Tel Aviv, it's not even four years. Right? Mm. Things are you know, we're going through elections after elections. So, so I don't think that leadership have woken up to the problems of tomorrow, which it's their sole job to address and help solve. Mm. They don't have any other job but this one. They do not have any other job. Leadership is about leading into or leading through uncertainty, leading into tomorrow, and trying to ensure that tomorrow is actually a little better than today. That's the work of leadership. So if you work with that, I work with this very simple definition that leadership starts where certainty ends. I don't need you to tell me about yesterday. I kind of know something about it. I don't even need to tell you, you, me to tell you, I don't need you to tell me about today. I also know quite a bit about it too. But if you don't mind telling me about tomorrow, I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I listen and I hear much about people talking about this tomorrow, and this tomorrow is coming. So we haven't regulated AI, nor can we. We did not form, form the ethical framework for AI, but we surely have formed AI. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, okay, so, so that's already rolling. It cut across all geographies and all areas of life. It will send the two billion people expected. It will send them home. They will live longer on a world that's getting hotter by the second. I'm curious on what's the program. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to listen endlessly to these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm very hungry and, and thirsty for them, and I hear none. Well, I think we're excited to hear what you say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I agree, a challenging time it, for it's, sure. It's really, and, it's, uh, and so really intelligent people are putting their hand in the sand, right? Their head in the sand. Yeah, certainly. And mm -hmm. not necessarily... Um, even demanding answers from their leaders. Mm -hmm. I guess in light of all this, do you, do you have any advice for, you know, Stern students about to go back out into the world and or people who are thinking about coming to business school and, and continuing their education yeah. Yeah. for, uh, you know, the future? I, yeah, I, th I think that along the lines of, of what we're discussing, it seemed to me that the most important thing one can do is to unlock their capacity to innovate. Hmm. Now, Ken Robinson uh, speaks on something. He has a TED Talk. If you've never watched it, it's highly recommended. His very first TED Talk, Ken Robinson. He speaks on, uh, he speaks on this issue, actually. And this is already uh, taped in 2006, I believe. And he says something really interesting. He says that um, all education systems throughout the world are educating people, he calls it from the waist up and slightly to one side. In other words, educating your analytical capabilities. 
And he talks, he has a different conception or different idea of human intelligence. He says human intelligence is not just analytical. Yes, you have IQ, that's your analytical capabilities, but you also have EQ, you also have um, physical intelligence, Mm -hmm. you have um, visual intelligence, you have other forms of intelligence. These forms have never been cultivated, nor were they appreciated through the education system. So the the education system throughout the world, his observation, and I share it with him, is one where it's um, focusing more on analytical capabilities, and it narrowing it's narrowing what's expected then from from people in their performance. Meanwhile, unfortunately to all of us, if this is how we got educated, the machine follows exactly the same steps. The machine is first and foremost analytical. And yes, it's sitting on the analytics that we feeds it, with the logic that we feeds it. But as you and I know very well, this little field called machine learning mm-hmm. within AI is one that suggests that machines learn, and we see them learn. And when they learn, they optimize beyond the algorithm that was initially fed to them. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we will be able to compete effectively with machines, nor should we, uh, especially not on the analytical side. But I think that our capacity to innovate, which we see uh, in people when they are six years old, and we see a whole lot less when they are 18 years old, and then we see even less when they are 36 years old, that capacity has to be unlocked. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the education system that can enable that, that can develop a completely different proposition on how to harness your capabilities and... Uh, develop unique thinking all the time. That is the muscle. All the time. Until you're able to learn to scale one of, one of these ideas to benefit more people. But I think the end goal has to be to bring innovation that better our lives. That to me is the end goal of what we collectively can do. And that should be the emphasis of any education system is to prepare you to be able to do that. There are emotional aspects to it of how you relate to risk. We spoke about this. Mm -hmm. How you relate to yourself, how much you trust your ability to think and to create. There are pragmatic ways to do that, to uh, engage you in creative exercises. And we know that when we educate, very rarely do we let people run with their own projects semester long and create something. Mm Instead, uh, we kind of try to force them into certain thinking. That's not helpful. So for me, this is one of the most important things to emphasize um, through education, through parenting, and of course through, if you talk about public policy, through subsidies that go in that direction, as well as dedicated programs to enable people to innovate through their problems into a better future. Certainly. Wow. Well, I think that's an amazing place to to, to wrap it up. Appreciate your time here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing uh, your background, your experience. I think it's going to be really useful for all of our listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. It was really fun talking with you. Thank you.